Thank you, Graham. It's a, a great privilege to be able to go and open the Word of God. And it's a tough one to go have to go to Tenerife for five weeks, not six. Somebody's got to do it, but there you go. The Lord is very kind. Well, thank you so much for the privilege of being back with you. Uh, I, I, I've been looking, we've been looking a little bit at the life of Elisha. Uh, and I want to continue to, to do that with you this morning. We're going to read together 2 Kings in chapter 3. It's probably a passage that some of you maybe have never read before, but there's some really interesting things that pop out for us, and I pray that you'll be encouraged by it. So if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 3, in my Bible it's page 370, not sure what page it is, in your Bible, but it's fairly near the beginning. So the heading in my Bible is Moab Revolts. So we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson. We're going to go meander our way through this passage just quite in a low-key way, but hopefully there'll be some practical things that come out for us. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned for 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to supply the king of Israel with a 100,000 lambs and the wool of a 100,000 rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at the time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are. My people are your people. My horses, as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom. Now that's interesting. Remember that, the desert thing. That, that will appear later. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What? cried the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, 
I would not look at you or even notice you. But now, bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and he said, this is what the Lord says, make this valley full of ditches, for this is what the Lord says, you will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you and your cattle and all your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs and ruin every good field with stones. Well, I think we'll stop there because uh, I'll, I'll tell you the rest of the story as we go through. We have been looking at the life of Elisha the prophet to see what lessons we can learn from his experience, lessons that may help us as, as we journey with Jesus. Uh, this wonderful truth wrapped up in the Old Testament can really help and encourage us uh, as we uh, walk with the Lord. Now we come to what is really a very interesting chapter, and in the chapter you will have picked up that there are three kings and they form an alliance against the king of Moab. And interestingly, it's a story of compromise and weakness. But in order to understand what's going on, we're going to have to have a little brief kind of a history lesson. Now, you know that God had chosen a people for himself, and you know that God had chosen a land to give to, give to them. And he promised Abraham, uh, whoops, he promised Abraham, he said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So God had given his people uh, a place to live, a land. And you know then that as the years passed, God gave Israel a king. And the name of the first king of Israel was King Saul. Anybody remember the name of the second king? Come on, this is new beginnings at Moodyburn. You guys know it's King David. Absolutely right. And who followed King David? Solomon. Absolutely right. And after Solomon, there was a man called Rehoboam, and he was Solomon's son. But he really wasn't a very good king. He, he stuffed up big time. And what happened was the kingdom divided. Now, if you look at the map there, you'll, you'll see that it says at, at the top part of the map, it says Israel. And at the bottom part of the map, it says Judah. So this kingdom that, that God had, had uh, this land that God had led his people to and set up a kingdom, it divided into two. So it can be a bit confusing when you read through the Old Testament, you'll read about Israel and you'll read about Judah. It's actually the one kingdom that was divided into two. Well, there were two tribes, both Judah and Benjamin, and they comprised the kingdom of Judah. And the other 10 tribes were the northern kingdom or the kingdom of Israel. Well, a man uh, called Jeroboam became king of the northern kingdom of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and there was huge tension between the, between the two kingdoms. There were like, there was a kind of a family feud and they didn't get on together at all. In fact, it looked as though there was going to be a civil war, but God graciously intervened and prevented a civil war from happening. But Jeroboam had a real problem. 
Now, you know that the people used to worship at the temple, and the temple was placed in Jerusalem. And if you look at the map very carefully, you'll see that Jerusalem is just across the border in the southern kingdom of Judah, right? So all the folks who wanted to worship God in the temple, who lived in the northern kingdom, used to go down across the border and into the southern kingdom to worship the Lord at, uh, at Jerusalem in the temple. Now, the king of the northern kingdom uh, said, if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. He was so nervous that he was going to lose the loyalty of his people. He thought, what am I going to do? And he thought, well, I have an idea. I'm going to set up an alternative place of worship so that the people won't go to the temple, but they'll go to the place that I set up. And what he did was he set up a shrine with two golden calves. Now, we know that the Ten Commandments tell us that we're not to worship any idols. So this has to have been grossly offensive to God. Are you with me so far? Yeah. Okay, well, let's just pick up the story then, because the story goes on, and it starts, Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And he reigned for 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this king, Joram, perpetuated the compromise of Jeroboam. And in time, you see, the people came to believe that God actually was like a golden calf. They kind of lost the idea of what God was like. And I wonder, I wonder, is that what's happened in our country today, that people have lost the idea of what God is like? Do you know, I was rooting around in a file I have of stuff that I've collected over the years, and I came back to an article that was in a newspaper on the 24th of July in 2009, and it talked about an exhibition uh, that was publicly funded, and it was held in, in that uh, museum, or not museum, in the gallery, the art gallery, modern art gallery, in, in the centre of Glasgow. And, and this uh, exhibition was of a Bible, and, and, and the Bible was spread out, and people were asked to come in to write on the Bible. And that's a photograph of the Bible, fascist God. God is fascist. I don't know if you can read that. And all sorts of other horrible things were written on the Bible. Uh, I thought it was just awful. And it just illustrated that not only were things bad in 2 Kings chapter 3, but things are bad today. People have a strange idea of who God is. I don't want to know God. He's a He's an abuser of people. People will say that. How sad it is when that happens. So what was the priorities? What were the priorities? Well, we read in 2 Kings, the priorities are stated in verses 4 and 5. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had... 
to supply the king of Israel with a hundred thousand lambs and with the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab, the king died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. You see, he had to pay a tribute every year to the king uh, of Israel, but he wasn't prepared to because when King Ahab died, he thought, that's it, I'm not going to give them any more wool or any more mutton. And Joram, he was really upset when the, the delivery of mutton failed to arrive and when the wool didn't come. He was so upset that he decided that he would mobilize his army and he would go and fight the king of Moab. There's nothing to suggest in the text here that he was remotely concerned about what God's heart was on the matter. There's nothing to suggest that he was concerned about the glory of God. His priority was simply the maintenance of his material wealth. Sometimes when we get a scratch on our new car, we get more upset by that than we do about hearing the Lord's name taken in vain. There's an American preacher called Tony Campalo, and he was at a big meeting somewhere, and he said a really rude word. I'm not going to say it. He said a really rude word, and then he stopped because people were really offended. And he said, you know, some of you are more offended that I said a rude word than you are about people dying without Jesus, going into a lost eternity. And isn't that right? We can get more upset that we've got a scratch on the car than the fact that people we know and care about are going into a lost eternity. A man called John Blanchard said, it is perhaps the greatest sin of the greatest number of Christians that in so many details of life they put God second. And sometimes I think we do that, maybe even unconsciously put God second. So I think that we see muddled priorities in this, uh, in this passage. So what does he do? Well, he makes an alliance then, verses, verse 7. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Jor Joram believed that unity is strength, and so he roped in the southern kingdom. Now, they'd fallen out over lots of things, but on this issue, they wanted to stand together. He also got another king, the king of Edom, to be involved. And this, this military alliance was purely for political reasons. There's no evidence that there were any spiritual considerations uh, whatsoever. They didn't stop to say, God, what do you want us to do? God, do you approve of what we're thinking about? They didn't. They just went ahead. Now, unity is, of course, important, but not unity at any price. Unity has to be based on God's word. We're not, few, we're not free to pursue peace at the expense of truth. That's important. And the next thing is they gave some thought to strategy. Look at verse 8. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. Now, I told you to, to, to take note of the, the desert thing, because there's a map of Israel again. And you can see the, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And right underneath that, I need to put my glasses on, 
uh, you can see the kingdom of, of Edom. And if you look towards the top of the map, you'll see where the Sea of Galilee is. And right up towards the bottom, you see another big sea, and that's the, the Dead Sea, right? The Dead Sea. That's kind of hot there and dry and dusty. So the, the plan was to march southward into the kingdom of Edom and then around the tail end uh, uh, of the Dead Sea to get to the king of Moab so they could beat up the king of Moab and his army. That's the way they were planning to go. But after marching for seven days, they got into trouble. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for their animals with them. So they were in the middle of a desert. And again, they didn't seek God's heart or God's mind on their enterprise. Now, sometimes churches make prayerless plans and expect God to bless and are surprised when he doesn't bless. Now, sometimes that happens. The army was out of water and thirsty, and there was a looming disaster with an unpleasant death as a very real possibility. The, the expedition didn't look like such a brilliant idea anymore. Look at verse 10. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? Well, we actually don't know if the Lord had called the three kings together. It was just something that they had done together. And finally, God gets a mention. The fear of God begins to impact their thinking in verse 11. But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? It's strange, isn't it, that the first mention of God is when their plans go wrong. Perhaps they ought to have thought about God at the outset. It took them quite a while to get to that place where they were prepared to, the, to look to the only source of power and guidance. And may God help us never to be like that. It goes on to say that an officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Of Elijah, of Elijah. So now uh, it, the prophet Elisha steps into the center stage. And as we have a brief look through the text, we're going to uh, identify several things that emerge about the prophet Elisha that I think will, at least I hope will challenge us and maybe encourage us a little bit. The first thing we notice is his spiritual caliber, his spiritual caliber. When people wanted to find out God's perspective on what was going on, they looked for a man who was a prophet of the Lord, and they went to Elisha, because you see, he was known as a prophet of the Lord, a man who could help people as they sought the Lord. And it's possible to visit churches in our country and not to hear the word of God. I remember a friend of mine moved from a church in Dunfermline to another church in South Queensferry. And I asked him how he was getting on in the church. And he said, well, okay, it's early days yet. And I said, is the minister a believer? Is he evangelical? Does he know the Lord? And he said to me, I don't know. 
I don't know. I want to tell you, I think you should be able to tell from your first visit if the preacher knows the Lord or doesn't know the Lord. There shouldn't be any doubt. And the challenge for us is this, that you and I become the very person who people will think of first when they want to find out about God. To be that person that folks will want to come to speak to because it's evident that we know something about God. There's a beautiful little verse in the book of Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 23, and it's the last little bit that I really love. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 men from all languages and nations will take a firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. And the challenge is for us to be like that so that people come along and say, hey, uh, there's something about you. You know God. Can I come with you? Because I I want to learn. Elisha was that kind of man. He was a man of spiritual caliber. Not only was he a man of spiritual, spiritual caliber, he was trained. An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elisha. Now, Joram's officer knew who had trained Elisha. He was confident that a man who had been discipled by Elijah could be relied upon to tell the truth. He had an enviable reputation. Look at verse 12. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. Do you know, it takes a long time to acquire a good reputation. You can lose it very quickly, but it takes a long time to acquire a good reputation. But for at least 10 years, Elisha was an apprentice to Elijah, and he served consistently. At any time during those 10 years, Elijah could have said, Elisha, your commitment level is too low. You're becoming a oncer. You're becoming a Christmas or Easter maybe Christmas and Easter. He he could have said that to Elisha, but he didn't. He didn't say at any stage, your heart isn't in this. Why? Because he saw a consistency of commitment in his heart. Elisha made good choices every day for those 10 years. And that's a kind of a challenge to us, isn't it? So that our choices are good choices. So not only was Elisha a man of spiritual caliber, uh, a man who was trained, and remember it says, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, train yourself to be godly. It doesn't say, Graham, train this lot to be godly. The responsibility is on us individually. Train yourself to be godly. That's what what Paul writes to Timothy. And then we see the next thing uh, uh, about about Elisha. He was... uh, fearless and faithful. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? He wasn't impressed by the king at all. Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. You see, the king had no time for God. So Elisha wasn't bowing and scraping before. (coughs) He was fearless. You see, he'd been in the presence of God. So why would he be overly impressed by a mere man. He spoke with directness. He didn't beat 
around the bush or massage the king's ego. He makes it very clear that he's not impressed by King Joram. Go to the prophet of your father. You see, Elisha was a man of integrity. And look what it says in verse 14. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. He, he wasn't trying to get into the king's good books at all, was he? He was just straight. Now, maybe the time has come for the church to stand up and speak out with authority and without ambiguity. If ever there was a day to avoid mixed messages, it's today. And there are mixed messages all around us. I don't know if you look at that one, at one clock says that it's just five past three and the other one says it's nearly 20 past eight. So which is it? Mixed message. And here's another mixed message. Young girls wanted for pickling and bottling. Well, if I was a young girl, I wouldn't apply for a job in that place for reasons that are quite obvious. I wouldn't get pickled and bottled. <laughs> Mixed messages. Well, sometimes the what passes as the church today gives out mixed messages. You don't really need to believe all the Bible. That, that same-sex marriage is okay. These are mixed messages that confuse people. And how important it is that we avoid mixed messages. The church is first and foremost the servant of God. It is not the servant of the state. And in truth, we can become complacent. Listen to the psalmist. The psalmist says, streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. Do you ever cry? Do you ever weep? Because God seems to be marginalized in our society. And, and what about the prayer that the psalmist prayed? Psalm 119, it's time for you to act, O Lord. Your law has been broken. Do you think it's time for God to act? Does that impact your praying? Well, Elisha not only was a man of spiritual caliber who was trained, who was fearless and faithful, he also uh, spoke out and he, 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 we see a real... Ooh, can we move on? What? It seems to have taken the hiccups here. Uh, just press the forward key. Thank you very much. Spiritual sensitivity. He said, now bring me a harpist. Elisha uh, waited on the Lord and he was sensitive uh, to the spirit. Let's move on again. Yeah. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And he said, this is what the Lord says. The hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. I think that's very interesting to just pick up on the place of music in all of this. They summoned the musician. And while the musician played, we don't know what they played, they could have played one of the melodies from one of the Psalms of David, we don't know. We know that instrumental and vocal worship has really had a significant role in inviting the presence of the Holy Spirit to come upon meetings like this. Maybe that's why the enemy always makes music such a hot, topic in churches folks are falling out but not singing the hymns that i like the attitude really ought to be well thank you lord you know i don't like it but make it a blessing to somebody else isn't that the right attitude it just seems that when they 
devil was kicked out of heaven. He landed in the choir stalls and there's been, there's been a stromash ever since. Well, don't you think that we ought to be praying as uh, that the hand of the Lord might come upon us? The hand of the Lord came upon Elisha and all of the activities of the church. Don't we need to know the hand of the Lord upon all of them? Because there will only be blessing if God chooses to work in and through them. Spiritual sensitivity. God grant a spiritual sensitivity. And then the next one was there was clear teaching. He said, this is what the Lord says, make this valley full of ditches. And then he goes on to say, you will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water and you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. So they wouldn't see wind, they wouldn't see rain, but the valley would be filled with water. Verse 18, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. Now that's kind of just thrown in and as a little afterthought, he will also hand over Moab to you. But isn't it interesting to see God's sovereignty? It was no problem for God to, to supply uh, the water, but, but there's man's responsibility here as well because God said, you dig the ditches. Now, no, no doubt it would have been easy for them to sit down to one side and say, God, could you do the ditches and provide the water? Because God could do that. But God chose not to do that. It's interesting. They had to dig the ditches. Now, we pray for God to pour out his blessing, and we long to see it. But I wonder, are there any ditches, as it were, that God wants us to dig? Any things that God wants us to do? Sometimes churches, bigger churches, are not terribly welcoming. And church is one of the easiest places to be lonely in. How good it is when folks care for each other. Just say, how has your week been? I've been praying for you. Is there anything you want to share without putting folks on the spot? By just really expressing love to others in the way that we would like love expressed to ourselves. Does it not say, and we sometimes refer to this as the, the best kept secret in the Bible, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you love each other. It's not that some men might know you're my disciples, but that all men might know you're my disciples if you love each other. So could there be ditches that God wants us to dig? A willingness to perhaps think the unthinkable in order to better fulfill the mission that God has given us. I think digging ditches is hard work, but the people obeyed and they worked hard. The next morning, it says about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Amazing. The land was filled with water. God was doing something extraordinary. Well, he was just doing what he said he would do. And what the king of Israel wanted simply was the resumption of the annual tribute of mutton and wool, because he was thinking about his pocket and his comfort. But actually, God had a different plan. 
God had something else in mind. Verse 19, you will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs and ruin every good field with stones. God wanted them to do some major work in Moab because God was displeased with Moab. And we need to understand that the church is involved in a spiritual warfare. Why do you think God has given us spiritual armor? It's not an item of fashion. It's an item of function. And don't we read in Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Make no mistake, Christians face hostility and discrimination. Um, there's an enemy who is vicious, who hates Jesus. And the only way he can get at Jesus is to, is to have a pop at Christians. And he does it. He's committed to our destruction. He looks for the chink in the armor, any weakness or any vulnerability. And he just loves it when Christians fall out, when they begin to be critical of one another, when they misrepresent one another. And when they're a bit judgmental, the enemy just rubs his hands with glee because that's what he likes to do because he knows he can damage the church. Verse 22, when they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water to the Moabites across the way. The water looked red like a blood. It was a bit of an optical illusion. They said, oh, that's blood. They've been fighting amongst themselves. Let's get tore in. And so they began to attack, but the battle didn't go well for the Moabites, not at all. Verse 26 says, when the kings of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break out through the kingdom of Edom, but they failed. What's interesting about that is that they focused their attack on one of the alliance leaders. And that just reminds us that we really need to pray for those who are in positions of leadership because they're kind of a bullseye on the enemy's dartboard. So do pray for those who lead the church family because their work is difficult. It's not easy. Pray. What a story that is. There we have Elisha. And, and what can we learn from all of those, those stories today? Well, only a church that has refused to compromise, that is prepared to embrace God's clear word and respond in obedience, only such a church will be able to know the amazing victory that God brings through his spirit. Only a church that's fixed and focused on Jesus. Now, there's a wonderful verse in a psalm and Hugh's going to read it out to us. It's Psalm 86, verse 11. Shout it out, Hugh. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Thank you, Hugh. Elisha, he didn't have a divided heart, but the kings, Jehoshaphat, Joram, they had divided hearts. And so the challenge, I think, for us is to pray, Lord, will you help me so that my heart isn't in any way divided? I'm just fixed and focused on you.
But there's another thing I just want to bring up very quickly in passing. You see, it may be that for somebody, there's a bit missing. There's a kind of an emptiness there. And that bit missing or emptiness might in truth be Jesus. And the marvelous truth is this, that if there is a bit missing from our heart, if we don't know Jesus, his love for us is such that he desires above everything for us to know him. And if you and I make just the slightest step in his direction, like the father of the prodigal son, he comes as it were running to us with his arms open wide to embrace us because he loves us. So there was Elisha, the man with an undivided heart. So I think there's some practical lessons for us. And I look forward to coming back in a few weeks time to, to take another look at Elisha. And I just pray that as maybe between now and then you might like to read on through Second Kings just to see if you can discover for yourselves some of the stuff uh, that the Bible teaches us about Elisha because he really was a wonderful man whom God used. And as God used him, so there is the possibility that God might use us in the same way. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it? Well, that's, that's our potential under his gracious hand. Can we pray together? Father, we do thank you so much for this lovely passage that we've thought about and we're really impressed by Elisha and the fact that his heart was undivided and we pray that you'd help us that we might be men and women of spiritual caliber and that we might be folks who, who are trained, uh, not just folks who are saved and stuck, but folks who, who just want to learn a bit more, that we might be fearless but always faithful, Lord, and that we might have a spiritual sensitivity that we might be able to understand whatever it is you're saying, oh Lord. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to be very uh, clear in what we share, that there might be no ambiguity. And we pray, Father, that you would use us and make us a blessing to others. So pour out your grace upon this church family. Thank you for it. Thank you for the testimony here. And we pray that in the coming day, oh Lord, that you would show this church family a sign of your goodness, that many would see it and come to know you and to love you. We ask these things as we say thank you. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus.